Welcome to Schooled by Cinema. This is the film class you won't want to sleep through. This season, we are dissecting screenwriting. And for this episode, I am so happy to be discussing John Patrick Shanley's Joe vs. the Volcano with Mike White from the Projection Booth podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I hope my brain cloud doesn't affect my speech too much. <laughs> I hope it doesn't affect mine either. I know it's it's been a busy time. It's October. We're all kind of a little cloudy right now. So, um, but yes, I am so excited to talk about this movie with you. Um, so this is a very special movie, and I am really happy that you chose to um, bring this to the table for this episode. Um, and just to jump off, I want to ask, what does screenwriting mean to you? Well, I've definitely grown in my appreciation of screenwriting over the last, gosh, 30 years. Um, <laughs> never, had, never had read a screenplay before college and mm -hmm. was, you know, like, okay, well, this is good. Uh, it's it's an interesting way to format things. I didn't really mm -hmm. get everything, but as I read more and more, I found that there were certain writers that could paint pictures so vivid i could see the movie in my head before i ever stepped foot inside of a theater to see it uh -huh. um for me screenwriting is the blueprint and it really a well-written screenplay can be as good as a well-filmed movie can just paint that picture so well in your head that you don't even really need to see the movie but yeah i i um i love screenwriting and for me it's like i said it's that setting up everything and sometimes even the smallest details might make it all the way from the page to the screen because it's also a very fascinating document to see what was the intention versus what we end up seeing when we go into a movie theater. Yeah, and this is a great movie to look at because it is the director. He is also the director of the film and the screenwriter. And so it's basically all him and his intentions from the beginning um, and to the screen. So this is a great way to kind of look at that side to side and see what happens. So do you have a did you do you have a long history with this movie? Did you like it when it came out? Is it something you came to later? No, I was, I've been thinking about this and I, I, I remember distinctly when it came out, cause I was actually working at a movie theater when this uh -huh. movie came out and I remember seeing the trailer for it a lot, uh -huh. but something about it just turned me off and I don't mm. know what exactly that was. It probably wasn't Meg Ryan because <laughs> I really loved when Harry met Sally. It might have been actually Tom Hanks who mm. people these days probably don't remember I mean, he, he makes bad movies still. He doesn't, he's not perfect by <laughs> yes. any stretch of the imagination, but he was in some really bad things for a long time. Um, I think, you know, like I was trying to put my finger on when I started to like Tom Hanks. I obviously, I liked him in Bosom Buddies. Mm -hmm. I really liked him in Splash, but then he was doing other movies that I just thought were horrible. Like, uh, mm -hmm. What was that one with um, John Candy, which was actually kind of similar to this? They go to an island, I believe. Um, I don't know if I've seen that one. Volunteers, volunteers oh. was one. Uh, I really didn't like the man with like one like red shoe. Guy. Yeah, he was very much the comedy guy. I think it was probably like Splash was great and everything, 
But uh-huh. the, yeah, he's in garbage like uh, the Money Pit and Dragnet, which I know a lot of people hey, love hey, these movies. I love the Money Pit. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> the movie after this was Bonfire of the Vanities. He was yep. not knocking him out of the park. Like I remember liking the Burbs. I didn't love the Burbs, so mm-hmm. I think I just stayed away from this movie. It wasn't really until. I think it was until a league of their own in 92 mm-hmm. where he started to really get on that hit cycle where he was doing that and sleepless in Seattle, which I'm not a fan of, but then things like <laughs> Philadelphia, which again, I'm not yeah. a fan of, but you know, gosh, there are so many movies of his that I actually don't like, but the movies that I do like of his, I like a lot. Yeah. He is, you know, as you know, we're all, he's um, like, what is it? America's dad. That's the idea of him. (laughs) And you kind of see that trajectory happening in his career. And this is like a very interesting part where he is going from being like the comedy's like number one nice guy. Like he's kind of, you know, like Luke Wilson in, in old school, he's kind of playing that, like that was his persona for so long. Um, but yeah, and then he starts just taking a little bit more chances and some of them work for him and some of them really don't. Um, this is something he was very drawn to, it seems like, from the beginning and wanted to work with John Patrick Shanley on this film. And also Meg Ryan, um, they were both kind of like an upswing a little bit when this movie was being made and they were on the rise and it was a very interesting choice for both of them. Yeah, definitely. And especially a big challenge for her playing three roles, which I, I imagine I was also very confused by with the trailer because I imagine I thought they were the same person throughout (laughs) that. Yes. But yeah, like I said, I, I didn't watch this one for years and years. And then I finally just watched it probably five years ago, six years Uh ago. It's tough to keep track, especially with the COVID years in between there. (laughs) Uh, And I was just like, wow, this is really neat. I can't say that I love this movie, but I really respect it. And I respect what it's trying to do. And I think it's really very smartly written. It is. It is one of those films that has had a kind of a quote unquote cult following over the last, I would say probably 10 years is probably when it really started to take hold. I'm sure that there are people in, you know, the time since like in the nineties, early two thousands who appreciated it. But as you know, as Twitter and all social media takes hold, people can make their big proclamations. And this was one that was one of the earliest I remember hearing being like, oh, no way, everyone, you should take notice of this film and re- and give it another shot. Yeah, and I remember the reappreciations and I was like, ah, maybe I'll check <laughs> this out. And yeah, it, it's interesting because it's basically like, what would you say? three movies in one it's like each Mm -hmm. act is so different yep and to have the three different meg ryan's like the meg ryan in the first act i have a hard time even believing that it's meg ryan because she just (laughs) doesn't look like her her voice she changes her voice so much and then her eyes look so big she almost looks like a margaret Keene painting Mm -hmm. at times i'm just like wow that's really that's her huh okay yeah and the way that he interacts with these women, it's like, it's really a journey for him because he's learning yes. how to be a person, basically. Yeah. It sounds like he was a person when he was a fireman all those years ago and then just kind of forgot how to be a person. 
And this is his journey to get back there. Yeah, it seemed like so. I think the fireman thing is a like it's something I didn't notice the last time I watched it. Is it's such an interesting part of the movie because it kind of is this thing, this unseen, unseen part of the film that yet holds so much weight over the whole entire thing as you go through. Um, because he doesn't seem like a fireman at all. Like he, it's just like such a odd choice but it works in how this character is um is evolving like you could see how he had so much fear and so that's why he took this desk job and that's why he kind of became an insulated person and wasn't really really ready to go out of his comfort zone um and then he like takes a step forward with with the brain cloud which is <laughs> such a fun fun fake illness yeah uh and i like that there are times actually i wonder if he ever left the office because it feels like <laughs> yeah once he gets the 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 um what am i looking for once he's diagnosed once he gets the diagnosis yes. it, the things just move very oddly the way that lloyd bridges shows up with that duck cane and knocking on the window <laughs> and everything and then the whole thing with ossie davis and stuff but when you get back to the end of the movie and they're going up the volcano i mean the path to the volcano is exactly the same as the path into work which is mm -hmm. exactly the same as the actual emblem for his job this i believe that the screenwriter wrote it as what was it a uh, uh lightning bolt by way of uh uh, German expressionism and I was like oh yeah. okay and like he even uses those words later on when he's talking about the path up to the volcano because I was like is that the same yes yes it's exactly the same <laughs> and the screenwriter is aware of it and I mean like I said it, it's it, it was really a treat that the screenwriter is the director like you, you mm -hmm. mentioned just because he is able to hold on to all of those little details that I think really make this such an important film and and make it so interesting to watch and you get those echoes constantly through the movie sometimes of dialogue sometimes of images and i think had another director taken that on they might not have been as faithful to the material because that going back to screenwriting what it means for me like i said it's a blueprint but sometimes you get a director in there or a producer or somebody else that just wants to change like oh, i don't really want that bedroom let's knock out that wall let's move this yeah. window over here sometimes that's great collaboration makes a better house possibly other times you end up with like this weird you know uh, uh um, winchester house where stairways <laughs> go to no place i could absolutely see if another director took this on that the meg ryan character and the the three different parts that it plays might not have been so much in the forefront or they might have ended up using three different actresses mm -hmm. and i feel that it works so much better when it has the same actress being used in three parts it adds to the magical realism of this film and this is one of the few films that really uses magical realism and is able to pull it off in a way that people try a lot of the time and it just doesn't work exactly i want to say right around the same time a movie like north comes out yes yeah uh -huh. and, and that's where you use it the wrong way you know uh -huh. the, all of the 
coincidences and just the way that the things work and that don't work. But in this, when you get, I mean, that, that reveal of the trunks, the guy mm -hmm. who's so particular about the way that he's selling the luggage. I mean, it's amazing. And then that those trunks keep coming back. The rest of the, the yes. woman becomes his rescue and all of those things that he buys when he's on that shopping spree actually all come <laughs> back it's, it's it's fantastic and yeah i love that and i i think it's the 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 use of meg ryan as these other women that also lends this dreamlike quality for me mm -hmm. because it feels very wizard of oz like well you were there and you were there mm -hmm. well you were there actually twice uh but <laughs> <laughs> you I didn't Dee Dee. even think of I didn't even think of Wizard of Oz, which is such an obvious comparison, but I didn't even think of that. But yeah, it's extremely true. And that's a you know, one of the few movies that's able to pull off something like this, also. Um, I love how this movie and I like that you pointed out as well, is it's like three different movies in one, but it still carries that like kind of magical realism uh thread through the whole thing like the first one kind of feels like a german expressionism mm -hmm. kind of film it has that vibe the second part kind of feels like an 80s like makeover film or like coming on up film a little bit and then the third part is like an adventure romance oh yeah yeah well the 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 recurring thing about his soul i think yes. really plays into that as well and it's not just him it's meg ryan as well how yeah. she talks about how she's soul sick but that we start the whole movie with him losing his s-o-l-e but when he says it to Dee, Dee it sounds like he's talking about his s-o-u-l yes that's a that is one line that i wrote down as something I was really trying to pay attention to the screenplay when I watched it this time and like what, how they, how he uses words. Cause he's, I mean, obviously such a great writer, but he uses writing in a way that's like a little bit like it, he uses the double meaning. And then he also uses words that are like, you can feel like if someone's having a profound moment, they might actually talk that way versus someone like things that someone would never ever say in real life like it doesn't oh, yeah. feel believable and i think that that's a little bit of a, a magic trick that he does and he also does this in moonstruck a little bit because that is about two people very similarly like taking the steps that the the leap i guess i should say the leap that they want to make for each other and this is just heightening that to another dimension yeah, I think it's very pointed that the Lloyd Bridges character's last name is Gray No More, which sounds like <laughs> Gray No More. That yes. it's, we are in the shit world that he starts off with. I mean, with the always incredible Dan Hedaya. I, I love him. <laughs> I know. I love him so much. Mr. Waturi, it sounds like a... <laughs> It sounds like he belongs on the island because it's such a weird yes. name, you know? Like, it almost sounds Japanese, but also like Tahitian or something. I'm like, what is this name, Mr. Waturi? And that he just keeps having the same arguments over and over on the phone. Again, very not dream like more nightmare like where it's yes. just like the same things being repeated <laughs> over i'm not going to argue with you i'm not arguing. Mm -hmm. yes i know he's got the job can he do the job it's like wow yeah i think uh obviously the casting is incredible even though there's this movie is like fairly intimate for being kind of a 
and like a very almost an adventure movie a little bit like overall like it's a romance adventure a little bit but the cast of characters is very small and you just get enough of a sprinkling of everyone like amanda Plummer at the end being on the ship like there's just like little pieces that you get to see because it's really a point of view just from joe's perspective most of the time but you just get enough of these little pieces throughout and this is such a let's say it's a, a writer's movie insofar yes. as there are so many little speeches like uh -huh. the, the speech that meg ryan gives on the ship about being soul sick and this whole thing about you know i asked you if you slept with my sister so i'd know something about you but you didn't so i didn't i mean those kind of things it just feels like you know oh give me that dialogue if i'm an actor i want to sink <laughs> my teeth into it and you also had that awesome moment of uh, Joe, when he's speaking to Angelica in the car, and he's he's really given it uh, all he's got as far as that speech that he has, and all of those little things, because Angelica could be the biggest waste of time character in mm -hmm. the entire movie, but she's got a lot of stuff going on. I like... Yes the affect that Meg Ryan is putting on, on her voice. I read one article that was comparing her to a manic pixie dream girl. I think mm -hmm. that's a little unfair because yes. she does not seem manic. She seems depressed. Yes. It's feels. So I got from her is very much the idea of pulling from someone like um, Edie Sedgwick and like oh, yeah. the, the sixties and seventies, like that kind of person who like, if you ever heard her talk, she kind of has that effect of trying to, of, of kind of blending these two worlds of trying to, of coming from this world where you're really fancy, you're rich, and then also I want to be a painter, I want to be an artist, so I'm going to talk like all the, you know, quote unquote, poor artists do. And it, and it kind of feels like this blend of these two worlds that she's trying to um, live in at the same time. Yeah, the whole thing of both her and her half-sister Patricia mm -hmm. just trying to get out from under their dad's thumb. Yeah. And then to find out just what a manipulator, manipulator Gray No More is as yeah. the movie goes on, especially at the very end. And I'm sure we'll talk about the end and talk about the unused end scene that was in the screenplay but not here mm -hmm. um that was fascinating to find out and there were there are little things in the screenplay you know i was talking about that blueprint thing there are little things here and there that yes. aren't in the movie some of them i think would have been nice but a lot of them i'm like okay i can kind of see why they left that out yeah it's a great um look at editing and how self-editing can sometimes and not sometimes, but usually is beneficial and mm -hmm. you really flush out what you want to say when you're able to self edit that way, especially because he was also the director along with the writer. Um, but I want, I want to circle back around to uh, Meg Ryan's speech. Cause I think that that is such a wonderful, also she's fantastic in that scene. Like oh, that's yeah. just like, you can see where she's going to go based on that scene right there. Like she's just kind of, I mean, obviously she had, I think she did when Harry met Sally right before this. So she's mm -hmm. like, right. She, people already know about her, but this kind of takes it to a, another level for her. And you see, because you don't spend a lot of time with these different women, but you, they are dimensional in what she brings. And in this, you see her as 
someone who is trying to figure out this person, but also because she is kind of an explorer herself, like she likes the ocean, she wants the boat. That's the whole thing. She wants to go where people aren't. So she's tr she has this inherent need to explore and ask the questions. And with him, it he doesn't give her anything. And it's also just in his character not to be explorational. He's mm -hmm. kind of tr figuring that out himself. I totally agree. Yeah. In that he's instructed not to tell yep. anybody about his mm -hmm. quote unquote mission. <laughs> because when he does tell Didi about his illness, quote unquote, um, <laughs> she can't handle it. And yes. yeah, like that's it. And so he doesn't tell Patricia. No, mm -hmm. he doesn't tell angelica should i just mm -hmm, had yes. the name yeah but yeah. when he does tell patricia that's an odd moment because the way that she slides over to him on the deck yeah. and they're both face to face and you're like oh they're gonna kiss and then he just yes. boom i had this happen da, 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 just like throws all this stuff out <laughs> which is very human it's very yes. realistic because once you pull that stopper out sometimes you just verbally explode yeah. all over the place and that's exactly what he does to her which is totally unfair to her yes. and the way that she recovers from that i thought was really nice and and also just a great acting moment yeah like he so he's kind of this bottled up person in general and so he you know has the quote verbal diarrhea a little bit um and so it's kind of interesting to see the difference in uh, in reaction from dd to patricia because dd is like <laughs> overly expressive doesn't know how to deal with it walks away from the situation and patricia is like okay she has to she is kind of like more of a sponge about it and is like okay i need to think about this and see see what's going to happen and these are both very human both very real reactions to this kind of absurdist premise but you know in this world it's really happening well and even just the idea of this guy who has this diagnosis and mm -hmm. is going to throw himself into a volcano because he's got nothing to live for anymore and he you know gets all this money i mean it just feels like a throwback to something from like the 1940s or 30s just mm -hmm. it feels like a screwball comedy premise and then even casting meg ryan three times it feels like something that another director in olden days would have done so it just yeah it's got a real throwback feel for something that is so clearly set in the late 80s early 90s yeah it has that feel of like it's a wonderful life or the philadelphia story which has the idea of the two twins marrying the two twins yeah. at the end it has that kind of idea um well in those films it's not really as heightened as it is here they're able to play with it a little bit more because you know progression and you know telling being able to tell stories and all that kind of stuff technology all everything um so yeah it, it does it is able to play with it it is so funny that no one knew how to deal with this movie when it oh, really yeah. came out <laughs> it is it so i just want to read this one this one thing because it's also funny that it compares it to another kind of uh, magical realist film. Uh, Vincent Canby wrote, not since Howard the Duck has there been a big budget, uh, sorry, I'm cutting off, big 
flat as those of Joe versus the volcano. Many gifted people contributed to it, but there's no disbelieving the grim evidence on the screen. Yeah. So funny. Well, I can really see why it yes. turned a lot of people off. It's yes. not... I've I've watched it twice this week, and I'm like, okay, yeah, this is good. There are some parts that drag a little bit, but I can definitely see why people wouldn't like it. I'm not saying that I don't. I, I yes. find it interesting, but it's not something I'm going to go back to all the time. It is something that, since I watched it the first time a few years ago, I think very fondly upon it. But it's not like a go-to film for me. But I can definitely see why people just pounced on this thing in the early 90s and did not enjoy it it's something that i think you really have to sit with it a little bit you you have to maybe watch it a few times if you're willing to give it another shot because it is such an oddity compared to and especially and i was watching this interview with john patrick shanley about all the films coming out at that time there are a lot of autobiographical or biographical films he notes like born on the fourth of july is the film he thinks should win that year for best picture and so it just is very much in contrast with what else is happening at the time so i, I absolutely understand it but it's just I always think it's really funny people's first reactions to things. And then I wonder if people have a different reaction down the line. Some people hold on to it. Some people change. This is this is a great way to look at how a movie evolves over time. I think it, I'm probably looking at everything with rose-colored glasses. But for me, <laughs> working at a movie theater in 1990 through i think 92 that period of time is very special for me and it just felt like there were so many different types of movies coming out at that time it felt like we were really between like blockbuster cycles i think the mm -hmm. biggest blockbuster during that time was probably like terminator 2 mm -hmm. but then you had things like hunt for Red october you had weird little things like um tremors yeah. Or, you know, where the heart is and the couch trip, just so many like strange movies that you aren't really categorizable, you know, and, and just kind of like, what is this thing? What was bringing out like uh flashback with uh, Kiefer Sutherland and, and um, Dennis Hopper? Like, where are these movies coming from? And And just that we don't get those mid budget movies like we do these days. No, we definitely don't. This is the time. And I think a lot of that has to do with a little bit of pushback from the idea of like the 80s action or comedy, because that's really when those films took off is like everything was like an action comedy or a straight up comedy or a raunchy comedy. And then you get into the 90s and it's like you get the more budget, more melodrama, more a little bit action just straight action films um and so you kind of see this cycle happening and then you know at, and then as time goes on the 90s are kind of like also the romantic comedy era where a lot of the big ones are or the modern ones i guess i should say are are being produced so this kind of doesn't really fit into any of those categories at all yeah i mean schwarzenegger was hurting after the last action hero uh -huh. um i'm trying to remember stallone uh when i was working at the theater oscar came out and then rocky 
five was right around that time. So it was just like it, maybe maybe stop or my mom will shoot. Like there were some really yes. bizarro things happening. <laughs> one of the biggest, other biggest movies that came out during that time was Gremlins 2. And nobody knew what the hell to do with that one either because yes. it wasn't the exact same thing over again. It kind of was, but that whole like Trump uh, building the Trump Tower thing was just crazy <laughs> when you watch back at it now. I mean, the a lot of these movies aged very, very well. Yes, they do. They do. And they get a, they've gotten a positive, mostly positive reappraisal, or at least more like a charm. Like I would say it's the charming reappraisal where it's like, it may not work, but I'm absolutely charmed by what this movie is doing because these kind of movies don't get made anymore. So I am absolutely going to just embrace it. Um, so yeah, it, it, this film is like such a weird, like, I like a little it's like a little bit on its own like it's a little bit of an island on its own compared to all the films around it um but so have you seen did you see Moonstruck I did I, I think I saw that out. I didn't see it when it came out I definitely uh -huh. saw it later um I had a real thing against Nick Cage for a long time oh. after I watched um Peggy Sue got married uh-huh I think it was such an odd performance i'm trying yes. to remember who i think it was Cher actually that said it was like watching a car accident in slow motion and that <laughs> was what she wanted for moonstruck mm. like it kind of turned her on for that it was like it's oh okay well he he works really well in moonstruck and he's like obviously he's kind of a wacky actor which is why we like him like that's why we appreciate him at least I do. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, no, I, yeah. I learned to love Nick Cage definitely. Yes, he he is something uh, as we talk about re repeat viewings. Like he's someone you have to kind of get into his mode a little bit. And the Peggy Sue got married thing and basing that off Gumby, I think, is like the the myth about that is that he based that performance off Gumby and like <laughs> it kind of bleeds a little bit into Moonstruck because that film has this. Uh, it's a little bit of magical realism in like not as doesn't go as far as this film and definitely doesn't go as far as his later films, but there is kind of this dreamy quality, especially about him and her, like all the family stuff is so great and grounded, but it's like their relationship and their love story is a little bit dreamy and especially him, like without the hand, like, <laughs> Like you need a special person. You need a special person that is going to take on that role. Yeah, uh, John um, Patrick Shanley's career is just so strange. Like just it yesterday, uh, there was a question about him on Jeopardy, and it was basically <laughs> John Patrick Shanley wrote this play about a priest and this nun who doesn't. Play. And I'm like, oh, that's doubt. And then after uh -huh. I answered the question, I was like. That's the same guy that wrote Joe versus the volcano that we just watched last night. And you know, Congo, uh, what the yes. fuck, man? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so his career, and I, that's also glad another reason I'm glad we're talking about this movie is because his career is absolutely like so wild in what he's written and worked on. So obviously Moonstruck is like the big he's was a playwright, and that's kind of how he started, and then he did uh, you know 
you know, the, uh, as you said, Congo and all these other things. But um, so let's just, we could just run through a few things. Uh, January Man, which I haven't seen. Have you seen that one? I have seen that one. And uh -huh. it's funny because I, I recently re-downloaded that because I haven't seen it in years. I uh -huh. wanted to catch up with it because I remember, I mean, Evan Klein, he used to be everywhere yes. and was just such a major presence. I loved watching Kevin Klein <laughs> movies back in the yes. day, whether he was a good guy or a bad guy or a bad guy who was just hilarious, like a fish called Wanda. Uh huh. But just to have him as what is his name, Mister Fishkill on Bob's Burgers now? Mm -hmm. That's the only thing I know that he's doing these days. Yeah, he so he's like definitely a big part of my life. Fish Called Wanda was like something that we watched all the time growing up. And also this movie with Meg Ryan called French Kiss. I don't know if you've oh, ever yeah. heard of that. I that sure was did. yes, that is a big movie for me and my household growing up. And so I'll have to check that out and kind of see what that's like. Um, but yeah, he wrote that. And then next is Joe vs. the Volcano and then Alive. Yep. Which, which I remember the 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 best thing about that movie for me was the Entertainment Weekly review that was under the headline <laughs> "Fine Young Cannibals." <laughs> <laughs> wow, that that that's a great uh, that's a great play on this film. This film also meant a lot to me because it was one of my cousin's favorite films, and so we watched it like all the time growing up. Also, which is a weird thing. <laughs> to watch a lot of but yeah. definitely did um she she really liked the survival aspect so we always watched that and then it goes into we're back a dinosaur story but i think that had like 20 writers on it yeah. so we probably oh, just yeah. did a, a a run on it and then congo and then um doubt and then a few it looks like he does a few like um TV shows and shorts, and then Wild Mountain Time, which is his most recent film. Have you seen that movie? I have not. I wasn't even aware of that one until starting to do my research for this. Um, I would say watch it because it is really, really weird. Like it takes the idea of Joe versus the volcano, the magical realism and that, and like amps it up to 10 without the stylistic choices. It's mm. like the, the characters are kind of like in their own little world, but everything around them is like very realistic. So it's a very odd tension that this, that it creates. I don't think it's particularly I don't want to say it's not good, but I just think it's like such a odd choice to go in the direction that they do in the movie. But you can kind of see as you watch it and as you think about it, why it would work probably better as a play, mm -hmm. which obviously he's known for being a playwright. Um, but it you feel like the things that would happen i don't want to spoil it i don't know if you, you might not know what happens in it but there's like a very odd like th third act twist that happens that i don't want to spoil so hmm. don't don't read anything about it just watch it um but you see how it would work better on stage versus working on screen okay well i will keep all that in mind but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does. It's got Emily Blunt and yes. um, Chris Walken in there. Uh, I'm not sure who else, but I, I like Emily Blunt even uh -huh. in some of the bad movies that she's been yeah. in, like uh, that horrible Disney one from a few years yes. ago. Oh my God, Jungle Cruise! I have the so Jungle many Cruise, like 
so many thoughts about that movie and how they it utterly failed in every way. And like, she's just always good. Like she's always giving an A plus performance, no matter what the movie is around her. Um, and Jamie Jordan is in that movie who has like quietly become one of our, you know, better kind of a little bit of a character actor a little bit being in, have you seen Barb and star go to Vista Del Mar? I haven't seen that one yet. I've That's, heard it's fantastic. It's it's super funny. And speaking of magical realism, it's like very much plays into a, a comedy version of that. And he's very good playing the straight man. And hmm. it's just so funny to see his career going from like 50 shades of gray, <laughs> like kind of being this being okay, being the weird oddball in these films. I think, I mean, he was pretty odd and a weird uh and an oddball <laughs> yeah in that 50 gray uh, 50 shades jesus i'm losing my ability to talk it must be that brain cloud coming back yeah, i know the brain cloud is coming back <laughs> i would have liked to have spent more time on the island in this movie yes. it feels very quick what they do but i love the costume design and i love all the production design in that mm -hmm. part of the movie just using all of those uh the orange soda cans i mean that that and then the bizarre makeup of the of the people on the island yes. was it like celtic jewish uh can't remember what else yeah. but that they are singing hava nagila when they pick them up from the yeah. the 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 raft the uh the trunk raft yes yeah it, that was great it's kind of a I feel like there's like a kind of a want to be sensitive to it, to the fact that they're using this tribe and kind of this other person, other, you know, culture. I feel it a little bit, but I think we don't get to see it enough to like really understand. It's like so fast. Uh -huh. And I forgot how fast it is this time when i was watching it i was like oh wow it's like maybe five to eight minutes that you spend on the island and when you're leading up to this whole thing oh yeah because it's it's basically like he's going to skull island in king yeah. kong mm -hmm. and you spend a little bit more time in every version of king kong i think with the natives before they kick them into you know before they put poor Frey ray up for uh, a sacrifice yeah i yeah i want to know more because it's like he shows up they're like okay great welcome they prepare him with that that great ritual i love how she's getting so pampered and he's just getting picked on by the men yes. on the island and then it's basically like we're having dinner and then you're going to go up to the top of the volcano and throw yourself in there's not like well, you'll do it tomorrow morning or the next night. Yep. It is, we got to do this now. God woo is very mad. We got to satiate this guy. Well, you kind of forget that they're like on the water for like, I don't know, maybe a week or something. I'm not sure right. how long they're, they're shipwrecked. Um, but yeah, so I think the shipwrecked part is such a fascinating part of the whole film and that and he writes about it in such detail in the script and i oh, think yeah. this script is this script is a great script to read if you are if you want to see how descriptive people get and how much that shows from the beginning to the end of product 
I don't want to say product, but you, you kind of get what I mean. Uh, I don't. I feel like oh, yeah. I'm, I'm I have no content, problem but... with people, yeah, saying content and product because <laughs> you get tired of saying movie or film or yes. whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it's a great way to see that that and i also re was reading watching this interview with him and he was like i don't really start with characters i like to start by describing the space or the room and going mm -hmm. from there and like that's a lot of what he does in the script like i would say maybe like half the script is just descriptions of all the different parts oh yeah and it's so important and i love that there are parts on that raft where you get the uh, the dolphin that shows uh -huh. up, and then that dolphin shows up in the unused ending of the mm -hmm. the movie, which was kind of interesting. And yeah, it's just uh, can we talk about that ending? Because I, I yeah, I really go for it. Give a little description yeah. of it. So after they get blown out of the volcano, which you know you're talking about magical realism, that's yeah. totally it right there. <laughs> that they're blown out of the volcano and they're absolutely okay. The Abe Vigoda character, I can't believe we haven't gone this far without talking about Abe Vigoda, <laughs> but the, the chief of the island, he keeps talking um, about this other lousy island that's mm -hmm. right by there. And I think that we're supposed to understand that when their island sinks, they all swim over to the lousy island. Mm -hmm. So they're not all murdered like they are in the yeah. final joe versus the volcano movie that came out um but yeah when they get blown out of the volcano joe and patricia they actually get picked up by the tweedle dumb is mm -hmm. it the yep. other boat yeah and on that boat is uh mr granamore also the doctor and they make this big deal about oh we can't hide this doctor from you because he's on this boat and mm -hmm. so they bring the doctor up and that's you know because it's it's very much like what we have with them on the raft at the end mm -hmm. he figures out oh i've been set up this entire time uh but granamore is still very upset about him losing these mineral rights and all this and so it's an interesting way of doing this but they actually take Granamore and the doctor and they throw them into a dinghy and, and basically maroon them in the middle of the ocean yeah. <laughs> and then they're sailing away and that's when they get the the, the trunks show up they mm -hmm. take the trunks they throw them on there they're like got to use this luggage wherever we go and they sail off into the distance which is a nice way of doing it we still end with like some very similar dialogue to yes. what we ended up with and that was nice um but yeah, I thought it was an inter interesting way to resolve the whole Granamore thing yes. rather than just kind of leaving it hanging and also leaving them in a better position because now they're on a boat. They're not on a, a raft made out of four trunks. Yeah, I think it that is something that feels very play-like of having the characters come back around. It's kind of like a little bit like a like a murder mystery where everyone comes back around and so we have to figure it out at the end um yeah. versus them just being on the trunks is it, a little bit smoother of an ending for for every for the viewer to grasp versus being like why are these people out here on the middle of the ocean like I guess they're looking after their mineral rights. I don't know. Maybe yeah. he's looking for his daughter. Who knows? But it just doesn't feel as uh it feels a little clunky, I guess you could say. 
Oh, the other nice thing about that ending, too, is that we get to find out that Dagmar and the boys from the Tweedledee uh-huh. are fine, that they yes. were rescued as well. So that was nice because we don't have poor Amanda Plummer drowning in the middle of the ocean either. So that was good. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe if like they had added them, like maybe showing up at the end and finding them, that would have been okay. And I think that, but having the, dad and the doctor like such a weird combination to have them yeah. show up <laughs> at the end is a little bit uh doesn't quite work as well as this but i think just the visual image of them alone on the trunks yeah um is kind is kind of what they were going for yeah that was very nice and what brought me to talking about that ending was that dolphin because he shows up one more time uh during that cut ending um i think it's while they're floating away that you get to see that dolphin because yeah that that scene of them on the raft goes on for a while that's also a moment there's uh because there's a lot of music in this movie and there's a lot of like little kind of like dancey moments and things and there's a moment when uh hanks is on the raft meg ryan's knocked out for a while and he's dancing to an old song I was really getting big vibes from that because he, I was just looking at the way that he's moving. And I was just like, (laughs) he looks like a little kid looks like he's dancing the way a little kid would dance. And I was like, okay, well that makes sense that he was cast in big because he always had that kind of bad child energy to him as far back as like his stand-up days and, and bosom buddy days. He just always, because with the thing with Tom Hanks is when he breaks and he gets that high pitch, you know, like uh-huh. that no crying in baseball line like that. He used to do that all the time. That was like uh-huh. a shtick for the longest time before he kind of, I don't want to say reformed his image, but before he became more serious, but I always yeah. like that he can mix the serious with the comedy. He's not like Jim Carrey where it's just like, fuck you forever laughing at me i'm now a serious actor yeah and the another thing i like about the shipwreck part of them or i guess i should say the part where they're waiting to get to the island and they're on the little like raft is i like that that's such a good i don't know it's another way of extending the idea that no matter if we have like good intentions the world has other ideas for us and he ends up still wasting more of his life on this shipwrecked boat versus actually doing anything and it's and it's kind of a funny way way that the world plays tricks on us mm-hmm. so i just thought that was kind of like a funny little funny little use of um that his wasted time towards the yeah end. it's funny because he would kind of revisit that and cast away Yes, that is true. That is true. <laughs> but there was nobody there for him to care for. I mean, he could care for Wilson, but Wilson didn't need a lot of, of caring for. Uh-huh. But him pouring the water into Meg Ryan's mouth and sacrificing his own water for her, mm-hmm. I think that's probably one of the first times that she's ever really felt that taken care of, which was yes. a nice thing. Yes, it is. Because she feels like this very independent person. Like, it takes... I can't imagine what kind of strength it takes to like be a captain on a boat. <laughs> like oh, that. Yeah. even though it's a yacht, it's a nice boat, but it's still uh it still takes a lot of bravery and self self-reliance to do something like that. And that she's the one that tells him that he loves her first yes. or that she loves him first is a really nice moment in this like 
okay, let's get married. And, you know, oh, you're afraid of this commitment. It's going to last for 30 seconds. I was like, well, that's nice. She's She does have a presence. It's not like she's just yes. the girl to be rescued. And he, you know, he's very like, oh, this is why I was hired. This is what I need to do. Yes. He's got his one purpose. And she's the one that, you know, she's trying to talk him out of it. But then they end up sacrificing themselves together, which I thought was a nice thing. You know, it was only because of that magic, re magical realism that we're able to survive. Yeah. And I just, I like the, the line when um, they are, uh, when she's telling him that she loves him and he's like, oh, that's nice to hear. I love you too. It's bad timing or something along right. those lines. He's like, too bad. It's bad timing. And then he just like turns around and starts walking into the volcano again. He's very determined in this being his last action. I also like that the the Ossie Davis character and how that all shapes up because it could have easily turned into a, a magical Negro character. Yes. Oh man, I was so afraid of that the first time I watched it. And just yes. that Ossie Davis doesn't give a shit. He's just like, yes. why, why, why are you asking me what to do? Why are you asking me for all this advice? Why are you asking me how to dress? I can't tell you who you are. I've spent all this time trying to figure out who I am. And I'm just like, thank you. Thank you for that. And also thank you, Ossie Davis, for being like, I'm sorry, I can't have dinner with you, Mr. Banks. I've got yeah. a family of my own. And yes. leaving him there to do all of those things alone in his hotel room and having Blue Moon playing throughout that whole sequence. Great use of music during this. And I love that before they got i can't remember who did the score for this and was doing all the songs like the 16 tons at the beginning which is mm -hmm. another great song i love that in the script he describes it as being like a demented tom waits singer yes. doing all of these songs <laughs> yes. i was like oh that's pretty cool yeah the music in this is so interesting in a way that you feel I think we also feel a little bit more now. I feel like this maybe wasn't as, I don't know. I haven't watched a lot of, uh, like every film ever, but it's like, it feels like it's very prevalent now to use those kinds of songs in, as a way to punctuate movies. Oh, well, yeah. more films maybe around this time would use like one or two, or if it's like, you know, a 50s set film, they would use that kind of stuff. Like that kind of score those kind of musical cues throughout the film this feels like because it's all over the place it, it goes back and forth from styles to um you know time periods all different things so but it's very prevalent and they're very pointed as you said they're pointed out in the script the the use of i'm trying to remember Masquinada maybe was the name uh -huh. of the song when um, it's the shopping montage. Yes. This was a really good time. It was right before like the lounge music explosion. Yes. Of, uh -huh. The swingers. Yeah. Like swingers yeah. and just like uh, reissuing all of these soundtracks. I was just talking mm -hmm. about the Vampiros Lesbos soundtrack the other mm -hmm. day and how that helped spur on things like, um, the schoolgirl report soundtracks coming out just so many things think, that were happening frank sinatra do like a like i think he did like his triple 
a triple CD or something that was like a reprisal of all of his stuff, I think came out around this time. Don't quote me, but I feel like that's what I read or heard somewhere. So it was like very much a resurgence that was coming along this time. Oh, definitely. And that fit really well in here. I also want to say we were talking about other movies from around this time. I want to say this opened against Pretty Woman. Does that sound right? Let, I can I can look it up and see. Um, let's see. Because that's an odd one, if so, because that's also another quote-unquote fairy tale. Uh -huh. such yeah. a wrong-headed fairy tale. <laughs> um, so it opened, the one it placed second against was The Hunt for Red October, but I can look up Pretty Woman and see when it came out. Let's see, it did come out in 1990, so we're on the right track. March 23rd. This came out March 9th. So they were like oh, very wow. close together. And a March release back then was yes. almost the kiss of death. I mean, this is right before the Oscars. You're going to release all yeah. your Oscar stuff back in, well, probably New York in December and November, but then the rest of the country in January and February. So by March, you're looking at a wasteland. Yeah, and actually, so it's so funny you bring up Pretty Woman because Julia Roberts auditioned for this movie. Oh, funny. And ended up doing Pretty Woman. She was casted for that. But yeah, the music on this was done by George Delarue and Peter Gordon. If Thank anyone. you. And any of our music people, that'll, that'll be, have to date me down the line. I don't know a lot about music and film, so that's going to be something else I learn about. <laughs> yeah, and I guess it was Merle Travis doing the 16 tons. I'm uh -huh. much more used to Tennessee Ernie Ford's version of that, yeah. but I thought that was uh, oh, I'm sorry. That was he wrote it. It was Eric Burden doing the performance okay. of it. Okay. It's a very like 90s or like late 80s fine version cuz you kind of hear that a little bit like rock ballady guitar and sound that kind of like reverberation that happens in this version of the song mm -hmm. which fits really well for that opening with that yes. factory so i mean the 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 production design of the factory i just thought that was terrific the the how small everybody looks the way that they're trudging all the garbage yes. in the uh parking lot yes it's fantastic yeah, so and the production design was done by Bo Welch, who also did Edward Scissorhands, Men in Black, A Little Princess, uh, and is married to Catherine O'Hara, which I did not realize. Oh, wow, nice. Uh, one of one of the best, one of the best to do it, Catherine O'Hara. Oh, um, definitely. But yeah, it, it really, the beginning of this movie is very, it sets the tone automatically for what you're getting into. Um, and the song everything the garbage it's just so gross and you just and i like that scene where he he's walking and he's like i think he's his foot that's when the soul comes off the shoe and he like stands back and puts his hands up to the sky like is this all i have for the rest of my life this is all i'm doing yeah and then you go into like the dan hedaya stuff and i just have to say that this is like the most perfect office lighting that i've ever seen in a movie like even office space or even matrix it's not quite the same it just looks exactly how it looks in under fluorescent lights for people who work in offices like this you have seen it oh yeah no i've, I've felt that sucking of my eyeballs <laughs> uh, like he mentioned quite a bit the um 
the other thing where I keep talking about how this feels like a dream is that the lamp that he has, that little yeah. secretive lamp that he keeps and puts out and it's got the rotating uh, lampshade to it. I mean, that's basically the end of the movie. You've got the uh -huh. volcano and you've got the ocean, you've got all this kind of stuff. And then also even, um, oh gosh, there was another one, like the, the mask that the Waponi guy is wearing mm -hmm. towards the end looks a lot like the factory that he's at. Mm -hmm. And there was one other thing that I was just like, oh yeah, this, this feels very familiar as well. Um, Oh gosh, what was it? Yeah, because there's the big moon on that thing. Um, on, on that. Uh, oh, I know. It was the books. He's talking about these books, and yes. it's like Romeo and Juliet. So you've got the star-crossed lovers, uh -huh. Robinson Crusoe. So you've got the shipwreck, and then the Odyssey is basically the entire journey that he's on. Yep. But I didn't notice that. That's so true. It's. I don't want to say it's like foreshadowing, but it's more like winking at like the different oh, yeah. parts of the story um, because it's like, oh yeah, we're going to be playing in all these realms. Um, so, you know, be prepared for, for this kind of soul searching adventure. Yeah. And then even thinking too of the whole soul thing, how Abe Vigoda carries his own soul mm -hmm. with him and, Joe was like, oh, you better not lose that. And I'm like, oh, yep. okay, yeah, we've, we've got a lot of soul in here. <laughs> um, so one of the things I noticed in the script is there's like this, this part where he talks a, to a priest on the plane. Mm. And that was something that we don't see really in the no. movie. Um, and I think that that's kind of good that that's not in the movie. No, we don't really get much of that plane other than... I like that it's Meg Ryan doing the announcement that they're yes. about to land. Yes. That was nice. <laughs> yeah. So I think it, I think that would maybe be a little bit too on the nose. Mm -hmm. And I think everything else is like so so kind of fantasy-ish. It helps that it, and he's like, and I guess the Ozzy Davis character is kind of the idea for him to kind kind of get that out a little bit. Because there is talk in there, of course, I, I've mentioned soul several times, but there yeah. is even like, do you believe in God that he asks yes. the Meg Ryan character, Patricia, yeah. and she's like, no, I believe in myself. And yes. that kind of takes him aback. Uh, yes. He doesn't know how to handle that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that she's so self-assured, it it makes that line land a little bit and it a little bit harder for him. And then he's like, oh, okay. Like... I didn't think about believing in myself as a concept. Like all we think about is, should we believe in God? Is there a higher power instead of believing in ourselves and as being the what leads us down this path of life? Because he is so used to, you know, giving up everything. He he gave up himself to this big company. He's giving up himself to this journey. It's a way for him to kind of step into himself and be like, oh, you know, maybe I should believe in myself. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I have nothing to say to that, which is a line <laughs> that was used several times in this movie. It is it, the script in this and the way people speak in this. I kind of mentioned a little bit in the beginning is so perfect. And I think the way he writes and, and this also works in moonstruck a little bit and 
the way he writes people, it's a way for him to find the right actors to fill in these speeches and like kind of, you know, big ideas that he has that will ground what he's saying into something that people can kind of relate to. Yeah. It, it like I said before, it gives these actors something to chew on. And when yeah. you have people of this talent coming to this, you're in for a treat. You are. And I think that the, it's so funny that this happens at the beginning, jumping off point of, of both of their careers. And it kind of shows what they're capable of in the future. And I, it's so funny that people didn't, it, it's not something that people connected with at all at the time. Um, but I, I did want to note that Roger Ebert did like this film. He gave it, uh, he said, it is a new and fresh and not shy of taking chances. The film achieves a kind of magnificent goofiness. Hanks and Ryan are the right actors to inhabit it because you can never catch them going for the gag that isn't there. They inhabit the logic of this bizarre world and play by its rules. Yeah, it's very appropriate. Yeah. That's why he was the best <laughs> <laughs> for the time. Yeah, I was really glad when Carol Kane shows up in the movie and yes. gives him a haircut, gets rid of that Robert Langdon <laughs> years later. Um, the hair, the hair at the beginning is so funny because he just does not look right with long hair. I don't know what it is. He's just someone who cannot pull that off. Yeah, it's almost gotta be Tom high Hanks, and tight for him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sorry, Tom Hanks. It just doesn't look good on you. I'm sorry. I mean, that was what was really throwing me off like i was okay with da vinci code but angels yes. and demons i was just like man what is happening with that floppy <laughs> hair dude and what was that he played him one more time inferno i think was the last one yes yes like, it was. i have no desire to see that like when he's got the david s pumpkins wig on i'm like uh -huh. okay that works for me but yeah the uh the the almost mullet that he's wearing in this does not work for me <laughs> it, it, it is kind of like a mullet it's so it's yeah it's kind of funny that they have that kind of physical transformation along as long as well as like his soul transformation um yeah. all those new clothes and i love how like i said before the way that those things that he buys in new york play into later like the miniature golf thing that he's got yeah. on the on the trunks but especially when he gets that suit and he dresses up to jump into the volcano i was like oh that, that's really good <laughs> yeah so i also want to talk a little bit about like how this it took him a while to really come back i guess you could say because this film was so you know maligned at the time and it, doubt is really what brought him back into the greater conversation. Uh -huh. um, and that is such a serious, serious film dealing with such serious material. I've never seen it because it's just something that I don't really feel like taking on in my soul. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little intense, like those kinds of movies. Like I've seen spotlight and I'm like, I think I'm okay for right now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I like all of the actors in yes. Doubt a lot. I'm a big Amy Adams fan, of yeah. course, Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. what's not to like about Meryl Streep, but mm -hmm. I'm right there with you. It's not like something I'm rushing out to see. As soon as I heard yes. what it was about, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm fine not seeing this one. Yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. I maybe I'll give it a chance one day. I don't know. Is that one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's last films? It seems like it because that was yeah. 2008. It came out. And yeah. He well, no, I take that back. He passed in 2014, so oh, he definitely okay, okay. had more stuff. Yeah. <laughs> of course, he was in the uh, Hunger Games movies right around that time oh, as well. Yes. So. God, that I might always have been one forget of his last yeah. movie. I those movies are like have weirdly popular, like re really like well known actors in them, like secretly, and you're just like, oh, they just like pop in and like come in and like have a weird have a weird outfit and then pop out real quickly. It's such weird films, such such yeah. weird story. But yeah, <laughs> to be back to Shanley, so he wrote this. So he was like. Oh, I just went through this like horrible ordeal. What's the thing I most like? What is something I don't want to do? And he thought male nudity, extensive male nudity. And he says, What are you going to do with that? And he wrote this film called The Big Funk. And like, I guess a part of it is the actor comes out and like speaks and acts completely naked the whole time. I don't know. I oh, haven't wow. read the play. And it's just like this way of him dealing with this thing this thing he went through like he, you're a playwright you're a screenwriter you're putting everything out there for people so what else is there to do except face another fear you have after going through something like that yeah i mean that's that's one way where i just hate living in middle america because i'm looking yes. at all these plays and it's like oh this played off broadway oh this played on broadway oh this was the manhattan shakespeare festival it's like yeah that's that's great must be nice to have a really good <laughs> theater scene i mean this is detroit i'm in this is not chicago you know like yes that's that's where you want to like chicago new york that's where you want to go for your theater fans but detroit there's not a lot of these coming through here <laughs> I understand. I'm kind of, I'm in California. I'm in the middle of California. So we I could potentially go to places, but it's like always a drive and then it's so expensive to go to a play and it's like, oh, I don't know. I I do love plays and I used to like work, you know, help create the sets and stuff like that. I've always been too scared to ever get in front of people. It's like I, that's like one of my biggest fears is like talking in front of people. I could never do it. I always have the greatest respect for people. <laughs> <laughs> who can do that kind of thing but there is something so magical about seeing something on a, a play happen because it's so raw and it's so energizing and it's so, there's so much emotion happening there um and, and i think that's something that shows in his work and something that he really likes to do he really likes to like show this he's like a very much a humanist and he talks about being a humanist and about how and a, one of the things he talks about in moonstruck is this fact that these people everyone's telling them no and so he's like but what if you just did it anyways and it's a little bit of what joe versus the volcano is although there's a little bit more of heat under him because he thinks he has a brain cloud but it's like why don't i just do it and i love that that's a part of what of what he loves about humans and he likes to talk about. I think one major miss right now is that there's not a better version of this movie out there for yes. like, I, I, I don't even know if it's on Blu-ray. I bought the DVD because there was a making of extra uh -huh. on it, which is kind of a waste of time. It's not that long. It's not like yes. an hour long making of it's like, you know, I like, think 
watched that on YouTube. I was like, this is like 10 minutes. This is like yeah. not anything. <laughs> oh yeah. It's just promotional EPK puff piece type of yes. thing. And I'm like, I want the commentary. I want yes. the, the scenes. I want the interviews, you know, show, what was Nathan Lane? How did he end yes. up in this movie? Was it because of the play connection? Because this was one of the first times I remember Nathan Lane showing up in a movie. I know, and he's in it for like two seconds, like barely. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah but I would I would say, especially because he's still alive and he's still active, he's still, you know, a relatively you, you, you know, young person who can, you know, compared to a lot of people that have put out movies, like he's relatively still active and young and able to like have these conversations. So I don't understand why someone is not like rushing out to have him be on a commentary of this because it would be so fascinating. I, I understand it might be a little bit hard to get Tom Hanks to come on board. Oh, yeah. Although he has nothing but nice things to say about this movie. He talks about it being like something that he really enjoyed, really something that got him to like stretch his acting legs. Yeah. I, I mean, he, like I said at the beginning, he was going through some weird times back yes. in the early part of his career. He never knew what he was going to do. And I don't think he knew what he was going to do. Yes. I mean, his two biggest things at this point in his career were bachelor party and splash. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I love splash so much, yeah. but I, I mean, I'll be honest. I haven't seen bachelor party since probably 1985 <laughs> on cable and was probably yeah. not supposed to be watching it. I, it was not a big fan of that movie. That was definitely something that would play on like Comedy Central in the mornings. I remember like scrolling past it on the TV for sure. I don't think I sat and watched the whole thing though. Um, it, although maybe it's, you know, when I need a comedy, maybe I'll give it a shot and see what it's like. Yeah, it might actually be really good. I just remember just being very raw and wrong but that was also when i was 12 <laughs> years old 13 years old i might you know i might really enjoy seeing tawny katane in a movie these days it's true especially since she's no longer with us like it's just like this is a good time to look at those films and i think also because we're in this time where the raunchy comedy is kind of making a comeback and is a little bit more divisive. It might be interesting to go back and watch those movies and kind of see, and there's obviously parts that are, you know, not really acceptable nowadays, but it's good. It's good to watch these films and kind of see the evolution of these, uh, see the evolution of these kinds of movies and how we are at where we're at now. And it was directed by Neil Israel, whose stuff I like a lot. So yeah. Yeah, him and Pat Proft and Neil's brother Bob all wrote it. So, I mean, Neil Israel and Pat Proft were quite a force in the day. Yeah, so I think I think what we're learning here is we need to get everything a second shot. That's that's yeah. the that's the <laughs> that's the thesis of this podcast. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah, and, and like you said, going back and revisiting what I would call the boob comedy of the early '80s is <laughs> a perfect time to do it. Yeah, exactly. We need something a little a little lighter than the usual fare. Um, yeah, do you a little have, different like... than doubt as well. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely um do you have like a favorite like line in this movie or like a little vignette that something that you that stuck out to you that you really liked 
Um, I mean, anything Abe Vigoda has to say, I'm, uh. I'm there for. <laughs> Freaking love Abe Vigoda. But really that speech that she gives on the boat, I think is probably yes. my favorite moment of the film, just because it doesn't feel unmotivated. And it feels yeah. like she's sharing a lot of things that she wants to make this connection and she can't yeah. make that connection. So it, it feels very right to be in the place where it's at. And Meg Ryan just is stellar in that moment. Yes, she absolutely is. I loved this line um, from Ossie Davis when he's getting the male makeover scene, which I absolutely love. I love a ma makeover scene in general in any kind of movie, but you don't see male makeover scenes no. as much. But I absolutely love that little like vignette that's where it kind of feels like he's playing into 80s comedy a little bit the middle middle part um but he says uh, you're coming into focus kid and i just like that line and i think that's such in the way he says it it's just like such a elegant yet not highfalutin way of explaining his journey at that time I totally agree. Yeah, Ossie Davis is just, I mean, this yes. whole movie is lousy with great actors. Yes, yes, it is. It is. They're all trickled in and out. Um, well, do you have any, like, final notes or final thoughts before we wrap up? I'm Well, if anybody has listened to us talk about this movie <laughs> for this long and hasn't seen it, I mean, yes. what are you doing? Give it a um, shot. Give it a shot. Definitely give it a shot. Like I said, it's not the greatest thing in the entire world, but I had a lot of fun with this and I'm really glad to be able to have this conversation about it. So I really appreciate what you're doing and, and inviting me on here. Yeah, no problem. I think that it's actually, and I, it's, it's really a quick movie. It's like an hour and 30 minutes. So it moves pretty fast. It has the three part structure. It keeps you interested the whole time. So I think like, if if you are interested at all of course give it a shot if you haven't seen it in a while give it another shot we love to see it we love a comeback story <laughs> <laughs> well i just want to say thank you do you want to promote your stuff and where people can find you yeah sure i do a lot of different shows mostly known for the project projection booth podcast and but everything that i do is available at weirdingwaymedia.com so talk about um you know i keep mentioning abe vigoda i talk about barney miller on there uh colombo uh -huh. you know pretty much uh 70s detectives uh, apparently I'm, I'm very into that so <laughs> yeah check out weirdingwaymedia.com listen to the projection booth and have yourself a good time awesome well thank you again for coming on this was a great conversation this is a great screenplay and movie to look a little bit deeper into and i really appreciate it Perfect. Well, I just want to say you can find School by Cinema at all the places. And thank you again for coming on and have a great day.